Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, I get to sit down and speak with 2016 presenter and Arizona Cardinals head strength and conditioning coach, Buddy Morris. And we get into talking training, guys. If you're talking with Buddy Morris, you're going to talk about training athletes. And we get into what being in Arizona has done for him professionally. There's a lot of really cool things going out there. Uh, so he gets into that and how being in that location has helped influence him and things he's learning and, and what he's looking at. And it's, it's pretty cool to see how he's still developing. And then we talk about how their workouts are set up. And what his warm-ups not only consist of, but what he looks at with them and what his warm-ups show him when it comes to setting up the training. Talks about his programming and how he sets it up and what are some specific examples of like what, why, and where. As in like looking at what is different with different sports and positions and, and based on their activities and what they do and how they do it, how that impacts the training. Both training age and actual age and the health of the athletes, how that's impacting things, how all those things impact exercise selection, and who the influences are you know, to these decisions, and who the people are who have helped him build this, this program, and, and where it's come from. It's pretty cool stuff to hear. Then talks about the impact of surrounding yourself with you know, people that are going to push you professionally, and how important it is to, to hire and have people on your staff that not only impact you with what they can offer, but also will push you because they do things better than what you do. And last but not least, guys, we get into what to expect at the seminar. It's an absolutely awesome talk. You know, always when you get to sit down with Buddy, you're going you're gonna to take away a, a ton of nuggets and a bunch of awesome analogies and quotes. So I hope you guys enjoyed the talk as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Buddy, thanks for being on with us today. Jay, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh... Once again, it's always an honor for me to represent the Arizona Cardinal family and be part of the NFL, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity you've given me. Thanks a lot. Well, we're really excited to have you here now and, and have you down in Virginia in July. So, speaking I'm thrilled, of the- First of all, I'm thrilled about being invited to your clinic because I think your clinic is the premier clinic in the country. And I've looked at the speakers you've had in the past, like Cal Dietz, who I love, um, Hank Kratzenhoff is this year, Derek Hansen. Those are all people who's I've talked to or read their stuff who I base a lot of my programming off of. So I'm going to be sitting in the back like I was at the elite fitness uh, seminar last year with Dave Tate taking notes. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm sitting right on the side and I've got two people taking notes because when you're running around crazy, running the whole thing, you don't get a chance yeah, to do it. <laughs> that got to be tough on you. I don't envy you on that one. Yeah. Just no, like I, I don't envy you from being from Buffalo, New York. <laughs> well, Upstate is uh, is a different state of mind as we were talking about yeah. earlier. <laughs> no question, Jay. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about Arizona. Let's talk about the things you guys got going on down there, because you know we've talked a little bit before about what you guys are building and some pretty interesting stuff. Uh, you know, one of the benefits of being in Arizona uh, is I have Dan Path here, and he's less than twenty minutes away. And you look at right now, there's, I think, 143 or 145 jumpers and sprinters from around the world training there. Stuart McMillan's there. Uh, Chidi's there. And I don't even know how to say Chidi's last name, so I apologize. Andreas is there. You got top quality coaches over there. So it's, it's given me a tremendous opportunity to go and learn from Dan. Uh, one thing I'll say about Dan, like Charlie, I said always about Charlie Francis, they're great observationists and they're great problem solvers. They're not plan A guys, they're plan B. You know, what drives me nuts is people that live by their sheet of paper. It's on a sheet, it's going to be done for the day. 
even though they look bad, we're still going to do it because that's what the sheet says. And that's not true training. I think things are changing very rapidly in our profession. We're no longer strength and conditioning coaches. We're no longer physical preparation coaches. We're stress managers. And with the field of analytics and biometrics, monitoring the human body's physiological response to stress, and training is stress, Jay. And there are eight different systems in the human body that adapt to that stress. Cardiac, cardiopulmonary, detoxification, hormonal, metabolical, central nervous system, neuromuscular system, and last but not least, and the one that we should not forget, is the immune system. All those systems do not adapt at the same time. So our philosophy here is not to outrun the slowest system to adapt. Train what is trainable for the day. And that comes down to, as far as I'm concerned, and in my opinion, is watching your athletes move. Here's something I learned from Dan. If you walk into your warm-up, and we expend an extensive amount of time warming up here. We're going to warm up the train. We don't train to warm up. Before we even get under a barbell, we're 20 to 30 minutes of foam rolling, movement prep, activation work, reactive training. We're doing all of these other things in preparation before going on to the floor. But something Dan told me, if your athletes are real talkative and they're noisy and they're laughing and carry on, they're ready to go. If they're just laying on a foam roller dead-eyed, you better change. You're going to have to make a change to your program. You can't ask them to give what they don't have. Now, in college, it's a different story because no matter what you do, it's going to work. Let's face it. First couple of years, they're highly untrainable. The room for improvement is huge. But as that room for improvement narrows, you can't make mistakes. So you can't train a senior like you train a freshman. It's like here. We write programs based on position, positional requirements. Let's face it. The days of cookie-cutter programs are gone. Now, they should be gone, but they're not. You can't ask a lineman to run the same volume of work as a skill guy. It's impossible. And I get tired of hearing, well, their times are different. I don't care. Why are they running 300 yards? They don't need to run 300 yards. It's not a requirement. Nobody should be doing 300-yard shuttles in a sport of American football. Waste of time. It doesn't address the proper bioenergetic demands of the system. The sport is alactic anaerobic aerobic. So to expand the alactic envelope, or alactic envelope, you must train the alactic environment. Charlie told me that about 15 years ago. So the volume of speed work for our skill guys, speed acceleration work, is different from the volume of work of our big guys. So the closer you get to the ball, ball by default, the more strength dominant you are. The further you get away from the ball, the more speed dominant. Doesn't mean our big guys don't run fast, doesn't run our small guys, doesn't mean our small guys don't lift weights. I think the biggest mistake that I see in our profession, it's all about adding weight to the bar. It's not about adding all, just weight to the bar. I've heard people tell me for years, I follow Charlie's program. Well, if you follow Charlie's program and you're doing a high volume of acceleration work, why are you doing a high volume of weight work? Things are alike in nature, compete for the same CNS resources. What I think people fail to realize is when you tell an athlete to get strong, What's the first thing that comes to mind? Lifting weights. That's one way. What about med ball throws, explosive med ball throws? What about plyometrics? What about jumps? What about sprints? Every time you sprint, it's five times ground reaction forces, seven times musculoskeletal forces. When we have a high volume of sprint work, I 
and to work with Roger Kingdom, who's our was my assistant. And Roger's been with me since I coached Roger in college, to be honest with you. I can't ask him to do a high volume weight work weight work. They'll never recover. You have to take into account they're getting stronger via other means. When I say other means, those are other exercises or other ways. Remember, we're not Olympic lifters, we're not powerlifters, we're not bodybuilders. And I get criticized all the time because I was a bodybuilder. I competed up to the age of 52. But that doesn't mean I train my athletes that way. I train my athletes following the power speed continuum based on Charlie Francis's vertical integration periodization concept based on the 5S skill, speed, strength, stamina, work capacity, and supplements. That's what our whole program is based on. So Charlie gives you the chart to follow to develop a power speed athlete based on sports. The one thing we've done here in Arizona, and what people, if you go back and watch one of Charlie's old GPP videos, he tells you you can have a high CNS component on a low CNS day as long as the exposure is brief in nature. For an elite sprinter, that would be less than 300 yards of volume speed work. I don't have elite sprinters. So what we did was to disperse the volume of high CNS work throughout the week. We moved our explosive med ball throws, which are mostly concentric in nature, to our low CNS day. When we introduce acceleration work to our athletes, Jay, in our general physical preparation block, we introduce to what we call accelerative tempo. And based on position, for example, our big guys never go longer than 50 yards. Our linebackers and tight ends are big skill, never go more than 80. And our skill, you know, will go 100 yards. Every once in a while, you'll see Roger throw 200 in there just for sprint posture. See if they can maintain it. As a big lineman, as our big skill, as our big offense defense lineman, they'll accelerate five yards and then just coast off for the rest of the 50. Our tight ends and linebackers will accelerate out 10 to 15. Our skill guys will accelerate out 15 to 20. Let's face it. First 10 meters, you're going to achieve 60% of max velocity, according to Ralph Mann. And by 80 meters, you're going to achieve, I mean, by 20 meters, you're going to achieve 80%. So they really haven't hit max velocity, but they are still working on acceleration and starting to introduce the tissue to that high velocity work. Now, what we've done also with our, our older athletes, for example, I have Chris Johnson. This is ninth year's running back. You know, last year he had that uh, fracture in his knee, so he missed the last, I think, three or four games. And Chris is getting up in age. So what we did is change his program, and just one day a week he does tempo, one day a week he does the same volume of speed work that our skill guys do with Roger, but one day I do his sprint work on a bike. And the reason I do it on a bike and unloads his knee, I'm still mimicking the max velocity contraction of the tissue, which is what I want to do. You know, Dan tells the story of training Donovan Valley, and he had a major adductor pull, and he didn't step on the ground to like three days before World Championships. So it was all plan B, all bike sprints. As long as you're mimicking the maximum velocity contraction, you're still training tissue. In fact, to me, the best hamstring exercise in the world is sprinting. Mimic the maximum velocity contraction. Think about it. When the support leg, the ground support leg makes contact with the ground, movement about the knee is zero degrees. In an elite sprinter, the recovery leg, the movement about the knee can be 1,500 degrees per second. That, there's no exercise in the world that mimics that. No. You could say, you know, everybody's become a fanatic on the Nordic hamstring curl, which back in my day, back in the 70s, when I was running track, was called the Russian lean. Yeah. And I was, I had a great track coach who was smart enough to put us on a hill first, incline plane so we could lower ourselves down, and then start to lower the ground as we got stronger. 
but he was also smart enough to introduce eccentric training. Cal Dietz talked about this in his book, Triphasic Training, in the first version of it. Cal and I, James Smith, Tommy Maslinski, talked about this back in like 2001 uh, at a clinic in Chicago at Valna Sedkin was there, and we talked about most people see a repetition as just that, J, a rep. I see it as three different contractions, and all three of those contractions are controlled differently by the brain. So we spend time training each one of those contractions in our program. The second thing we've done that I think is totally different is I brought Anthony Paroli on board. And Anthony was an intern for me back in 2007 at the University of Pittsburgh. All these organizations are hiring all these Aussies across the board mm -hmm. because of analytics and because of biometrics. Listen, I don't need to hire an Aussie. I got a guy right here born, born in a good old USA who has a tremendous understanding who's telling people from Catapult things that they didn't know. So we only have 35, 35 Catapult monitors. We put them on our skill guys. We'll put heart rate monitors on our big guys. And most big guys are all static work anyway. Yes. But we'll, we'll look at not, only, not so much load because different athletes can handle different loads. We look at more change of direction and velocity. What's the max velocity of the high volume of velocities there? Then I'm, I'm fortunate enough to work with BA where he's now starting to listen to me and saying, we need to back off on this guy for the day. And he does that. So we're purchasing based on purpose. There's a lot of organizations and programs that have gone out and just purchased every advanced technological monitoring system you can get just to say they have it. They have all this data on their, on their desk and they still can't see the forest through the trees. Relying on data is like the drunk who relies on the lamppost. Actually, you got to get off the lamppost. <laughs> you know, listen, Perfect. people tell me I'm politically incorrect. If that's the way you view me, God bless you. And if you see my desk, which I don't know if you can, it's I can't see the top of it. But like Einstein said, if a cluttered desk is a sign of a cluttered mind, then what? then it is a sign of an empty empty desk, mm -hmm. obviously an empty mind. I'm always thinking, I'm always reading. Same thing Mark Twain said. Mark Twain said, when I find myself on the side of a vast majority, I take a step back and reflect. Yep. You know, because we truly do suffer from academic myopia. They're not going to teach you what they know or what they want you to know. Anything else, you have to go to like your clinic where you have people like Bonder Chuck Speak. We have people like Cal Dietz, Hank Krajanov. Derek Hansen. Those are the people who understand true speed. We're still teaching in this country, which drives me nuts. You want to get faster, you got to increase stride length and stride frequency. Nah, that's not what the research has shown from uh, Michael Young, Ken Clark, and Peter Whalen down at SMU in their biomechanics lab. Those are byproducts or consequences of running fast. It's all about force into the ground. Charlie has talked about that for years. Dan Path has talked about it. I have a, my wife is 57 years old and competed nationally as a figure competitor, competitor, Jane. When she retired, her bucket list was the pole vault. So I got this 57-year-old woman who wants to pole vault. What? Oh, yeah, she wants to pole vault. This is what happens when you marry an Italian. <laughs> so I go to Dan Path. He goes, yeah, bring her over. We'll give her a lesson. She'll see how hard it is. She won't want to do it. So I go over to Altus one day. Dan sets her up. Dan watches her bolt one time, turns to look at me and raises his eyebrows, and he goes, not bad. I'm like, don't say that, Dan. <laughs> Next thing I know, I hire Steve Lewis, the Great Britain 
Olympic champ to train my wife pole vaulting. So she trains my wife, he trains my wife pole vaulting. You know, when I go over there, I learn from Steve as well as I do from Dan. Because Steve is one of Dan's athletes who have been involved in the program. Mm -hmm. But these are the people who are telling us how to train. They've given you what you need to know. It's just that nobody wants to follow it. You know, the basics are the basics for a reason. They work. But in this country, we're so gimmick-oriented. If it doesn't say double probation, top secret, new cutting edge, we don't want to see it. You know? Nobody wants to hear about good old-fashioned hard work and just sticking with the basic movements. Nobody wants to hear that. They want to see all this fancy stuff. And I'm not a big fan of CrossFit, and I hope you're not. But CrossFit has become such a cult, it's unbelievable. So the CrossFit games, which I watch because I think they're interesting, they're unique, yeah. I would never do it. I would never have my athletes do it. But here's what people forget. Those that are survivors. Oh, yeah. Just like in the Bulgarian system. Everybody entered into the Bulgarian program with Albajayov, and he'll tell you, those are survivors. You don't see the other ones, they're in orthopedic offices, PT offices, or chiropractic offices being worked on because they're always beat up and injured. Because there is no rhyme or reason for what they do. I'd rather undertrain an athlete than overtrain them. Because mm -hmm. undertraining, you have a chance. Now, as Cal Dietz has pointed out years ago, before his athletes go on spring break, he trains them into the ground. Right. But think about that. There's going to be a 10-day period where they don't do anything. Mm -hmm. They drink. It's the it's drunken debauchery for yeah. a week to 10 days on spring break. They'll recover. The system will reboot itself and recover because we're an amazing, adaptable organism. You know, some people can handle that. Most people, some people can't. But he does it just right where he gets them on that brink and then they go away from him for 10 days. And when they come back, they're fine. That's planned. That's planned. Most of the stuff I see nowadays, the volume of work that we're asking people to do is absurd. Mm -hmm. It really is, Jay. And that's why, you know, we structure our volume of work for our skill guys, our big skill, and our, our, our uh, big guys differently across the board. I'm a 36-year-old quarterback. You think he can handle the volume of a 22-year-old? No. you got to be kidding me. This is Larry's 12th year. Larry can't handle the volume of work. So we back off on some of those things we do with Larry. Larry does a lot of work on, on a, the ground, on the turf with Roger Speedwise. I don't do very much in the weight room with Larry at all because of all the sprint application he's doing. I don't need to. But once again, he's getting stronger via other means. Mm -hmm. You know, I would rather see somebody squat 315 for five perfect reps than 405 for one rep where his knees buckle in and his spine flex. You know, Sean Miska, who calls himself the Mulan Miyagi, uh, I've had a chance to develop a relationship with, and he, he does a fantastic job. And, he, and I, I've said this before, I don't care how strong you get, if you can't move, you can't help us. Right. The one commonality amongst all great athletes is their ability to move. you got to be able to move, and you have to be able to secure biomechanical efficiency in periods of fatigue, Jay. But you also have to address the bioenergetic demands of the sporting activity. So, and I think those are the things we forget about. Why are you still running a 110-yard shuttle? I mean, one, one tenths for a test. So why are you having your players run 16 to 21 tenths? Lactic. Nobody, nobody's going to enter into the lactic state on a football field. It's impossible. No play goes lost longer than eight seconds. And the recovery, even with the up-tempo offenses, 
first play maybe 18 seconds, but by the time they get to the second, third, and third to fourth down, it's still 30-second rest interval because they keep looking over the sideline like this because people are, are changing the play. Dimaggio's getting a huddle. The other thing you're doing is not allowing the defense to substitute, but in actuality you are because we still got guys running in off the field. Right. But I think those are some of the things we're trying to do unique from everybody else. And again, like I said, we purchase on based on purpose. We haven't gone out and bought in every high-tech, fancy thing on the market nowadays. And don't get me wrong. There's some stuff I would like. <coughs> and I understand that our athletes are elite in their sporting activity. But they're non-elite in their sleep habits, their nutritional habits, their recovery methods, their pre physical preparation methods. They're, they're far from elite. Unfortunately, BA allows us to present <coughs> educational forum to our athletes uh, on a weekly basis before a team meeting. I'm a firm believer that, that awareness creates cognition, cognition creates motor learning and or behavior modification. And at this point, we're trying to modify their behaviors. Right. So we're trying to educate them, especially in Arizona, this is dry heat. You bring a rookie in here, he doesn't understand that. So in every one of our athletes' lockers is a recovery method chart where we list a number of different recovery methods to be used for the day, they must choose two. Mm -hmm. And there is also a hydration chart um, they must, based on their body weight, but also based on if we're identified them of a high risk, medium risk, or low risk, uh, the amount of fluid they need to ingest on a daily basis. Before they go out on the field, there are now uh, Gatorade slushies and there's popsicles to pre-cool the body. If you look at the value of a good warm-up, it does raise core temperature, increases muscle viscosity, tendon elasticity, primes the nervous system or increases nerve conduction velocity. BA doesn't like to warm up. He doesn't want to take the time. So he leaves it up to them. And even though they're on a pro level, I got guys who just stand in a hot tub on a 95, 100-degree day. Right. First of all, he cheated the system <clears throat> yep. by 75% of what is needed. Second of all, all you've done, you have increased core temperature, don't get me wrong, but you also started to perspire and pull fluid out of the tissue mm -hmm. because you want to get warm, go outside and stand for five minutes. It's 100 degrees. You know, that's why we don't have a full OTA where we cut off one week because it gets so hot here. So BA gives them an extra week where they can go home. But those are the things in our education program as we move forward and what people are now referring to as a sports science program, which just going to refer to as a biometrics program with Anthony, and how we address uh, individual position requirements for the individual themselves in our program uh, that I think make us uniquely different. That and uh, all three of us are taking the FRC course this weekend with uh, oh, neat. Andrew Spino. We're going to all take that this weekend. Uh, Charlie Vinecroft is coming out here in May. We're going to be attending that. And again, I go over to see Dan as much as possible because it gives me a chance to watch some elite people in the world learn to train. And, and I pick up a lot. Like I said, I pick up a lot of Steve Lewis, who's working with my wife, because he's been in the system for so long. He's been on that elite level for so long. You can never limit, you know, I've always said, if you limit your knowledge, you limit your abilities, you limit your abilities, you limit the development of your athlete. And what's your job? Develop your athlete. Yeah. You can't tell me you don't have time during the day. Make time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a mistake people make. you got to read. I read every day. I read and look at something every day. When I had Anthony in 2007, part of his job as my intern was to present me with research articles and educate me, which is why I always hired people that are smarter than me, Jay. Because they make me look good, number one. Yeah. 
But two, I continue to be in an environment to learn. You know, I'll be the first to admit I don't know everything. I'm not going to try and tell you how to train. All I'm going to do is tell you what's worked for me. Everybody knows I'm an Olympic lift. I'm not going to argue about it. I'm not going to waste my time anymore. You do what you believe, I'm going to do what I believe. But don't criticize me because I don't Olympic lift. You know, right. there's other easier methods to use from a teaching perspective. I mean, let's face it. These guys can't squat and bench perfect. Why well, do I want to introduce something that requires even more technical mastery, especially when the sport, the, the, process of, the process of obtaining sport mastery is a very difficult process for the human body itself. So why do I introduce something that is going to require even more technical skill and mastery? Right. But I think we've been blind and have had our blinders on like so many people have. They get stuck in one system and mm -hmm. that's it. And then, trust me, I've tried it early in my career. Pain the ass to teach. Some guys picked it up. Majority of them didn't. They look bad. Back extension of the forearm curl. I get all these people, you know, you see all these programs that lower back and patellofemoral issues and they blame it on the squat. <laughs> I don't think it's a squat. No. I mean, it's an enormous amount of volume and too much pulling. Mm -hmm. you know, because they're not doing it properly. Right. But don't expect them to do it properly because that's not their sporting activity. Their sporting activity is on the field. What can I do to help them develop their skill set that is required by the sporting activity in their, in, in their chosen sport or on their, in their position? And that's what we try to do here. Uh, don't get me wrong. They're useful for developing X, Y, and Z. Right. Which is for their sport. I'm stating that I think the religion's flawed and those movements, especially the overhead variations, are just a poor choice for a sport that requires high-speed collisions like we do. Right. You know, it's easier to teach a med ball throw, and I think, say, teach a med ball throw properly because I met a guy named Kendo Yamamoto uh, through Steve Lewis, who wrote a book on med ball training for golf. The guy's one of the most intelligent guys I've ever met, and he made more more aware of the intricacies of throwing a med properly. There's jumps, there's plyos, and there's true sprint work. Now, let me separate true speed sprint work from a lactic work. If you tell me you run 1030s, that's not speed work. That's a lactic work. From a biochemical standpoint, from a neuroendocrine standpoint, from a muscle synchronization standpoint, from a dynamic muscle activity standpoint, it is the highest with sprinting. How many 40s do they run to combine? Two? Mm -hmm. Your third one, you may pop one. There's somewhere in those three. You're not going to run four, five, and six 40s a lot like that. True speed work, it may be three 30s or three 40s or three 50s. I watched them in Altus one day. And it was the guy who won the bronze medal from the last Olympics was there. Grasso, I think. I forget his name. I don't, I'm oblivious to everything except for what goes on in my weight room. But I watched him run 360s all lot. And that was his speed work for today. From a, so from a biochemical standpoint, from a hormonal standpoint, it's totally different. Mm -hmm. True speed sprinting than it is from a-lactic work. We do a-lactic and acceleration work. Which we do. But in that, we also do deceleration work. Now, we spend most of our work linear. We'll do some deceleration hops in multiple planes. After the football season, and our season extended to the end of January by the grace of God, these guys would go to their personal terrorists, wherever they are across the country, 
and you start doing change of direction work already, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. That's not general physical preparation. General means linear first. Reestablish those sequential firing patterns. Reestablish those neuromuscular synchronization patterns in linear acceleration and teach them deceleration through deceleration hops before you start changing direction. Putting a hard cart before the horse as far as I'm concerned. Not like that, you're structurally overlanding the things they don't need to do. And even if you are saying, well, I have a small facility and I don't have a lot of space, put them on a bike and sprint them. Mm -hmm. Mimic the maximum velocity contraction through speed on a, on a bicycle, on a bike sprint. Because think about it, sprinting is nothing more than task back, step, toe, over knee, right? Eliminate backside mechanics, that's sprinting on a bike. But if you look at true sprinting, you know, it's about force into the ground. So I always tell our guys, if you want to run faster, you want to make a bike go faster, you push down a pedal or pull up. You push down. That's speed work. That's sprinting. But again, we're acceleration. We don't have too many real speed days where we just put them on the ground, put them on the ground and say, balls to the wall, 30 yards. We're going to do three of these. Ours is more alactic work. And it's with sleds. It's with bands. Uh, it's contrasting. I wish, I'd love to have a hill here. Because if I had a hill that I could do, it's more strength speed dom, I could do a greater volume of work early on. Unfortunately, we don't have a great hill uh, near the complex in Arizona. So, again, we adapted what I've learned from Dan and Charlie, Hank, and from Derek Hanson. Derek helped me write our acceleration program two years ago. Um, we've expanded on it a little bit. You have to adapt what they you learn from those guys to your environment, your circumstance, and your athletes. Oh, That's yeah. the key. You can't do what I do in your program. You're not in the same environment, not the same athletes, not the same situation. Not the same circumstances. You have to take all that into account with your athletes. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, Verkashansky said the same thing when it comes to the multi-directional jumps. Is that that's that's the stuff that comes at the end. You got to develop all the running exercises, and then you've got to exactly. be able to do all the vertical exercises before you go off the center. And, and Natalia said it exactly as you did. The the linear and the vertical stuff preps you and prepares you to get better at the change of direction stuff. Correct. Exactly. So yeah. why you start with multi-directional work first? Yeah. That's ridiculous. If you do have a small facility and you're in inclimatic weather, jumps, plyos, and introduce them in progressions. Give them what they can handle. Mm -hmm. Never give an athlete what they can't handle. You'd be surprised. I teach them how to land here first. And I teach them on a box where I can bring the ground up. Once they demonstrate they can land eccentrically on a box, and I don't, I don't make the box 52 inches so they can put their head in their ass. That only shows me a great hip, hip mobility. We keep the box height the same. I just tell them to jump higher and land softer. Mm -hmm. Same we teach our hurdle bounds. We don't teach a hurdle bound first. We teach a hurdle jump. Jump over, stick and stay. You know, I had Mike Dango, who I think is a pretty smart cat mm -hmm. uh, from Freak Strength. He just spent a week with me. And Mike and I had spent, you know, five days just talking about things. And we don't agree on everything. He doesn't like sled sprints. I do like sled sprints. I do agree that sled sprints, and there's a cost benefit for everything, Jay. Right. So we do. If you're, I like sled sprints, but I understand that um, it limits the interval rate at which the angle of force production decreases, but you also increase ground contact time. Mm -hmm. So there's a trade-off. But in that ground contact time, it's actually teaching my guys who are not elite sprinters, and how I do I not see all year round because of rules the CBA teaches them propulsion to push in and push in and away from the ground. But you know, Mike and I were talking about things. And like I said, we don't agree on everything, but we do agree on our progression of how to jump. And like Mike said, same thing. I teach my guys, don't put the box height up. Just jump higher, land softer. So we do the same thing. 
before we start getting into any reactive work. Mm -hmm. And again, you can be explosive, but that doesn't mean you're reactive. I think people fail or don't don't fail, just don't want to remember or know. There's eight different strengths an athlete must train for. There's number one, maximum effort strength, which is the mother of all strengths. The ability to exert voluntary maximum force irregardless of time and weight. Strength speed, speed strength. Accelerating strength, starting strength, reactive reversal strength, power, force equals mass time acceleration, and explosive strength, the rate of force development, the ability to recruit or turn on as many motors as short as amount of time as possible. Those are eight different strengths they have to train for. I use this example all the time. You go to, you go to college as a freshman, you squat 350, vertical jump 30 inches. Squat goes to 375, vertical jump goes to 32 inches. Squat goes to 400, vertical jump stays at 32 inches. Why? Mm -hmm. Inability to display in a short amount of time. Yep. And that has to be trained, mm -hmm. especially after, you, after you've been training for a while to get to a certain point. So you have to, you know, don't get me wrong, certain methods will address several of those qualities. For example, <clears throat> we do dynamic effort bench. Some people like it, some people don't. I do. Uh, teaches reactive reversal strength and teaches dynamic speed or, or power and rate of force development. Maximal effort strength or max effort work will teach strength speed, absolute mm -hmm. strength, but also is great for teaching the ability to, depending on the exercise, starting and accelerating strength. Floor, floor pressing teaches both starting and accelerating strength. Then again, depending on how you teach it. Right. We'll teach the floor press one of two ways. Either pause the bar on the ground for a two-count or touch and go. So if I'm going to pause the bar on the ground, then I'm going to develop starting strength. If I'm going to touch and go, then I'm going to develop the, um, the lockout skill of bench press instead of just starting. And again, it depends on the individual. If you got a guy who got a thick chest, you know, I had a guy in college at Pitt, and I got two guys here, uh, Taylor Boggs um, and A.Q. Shipley, who are both our offense linemen. Their chests are so thick, <laughs> they have these T-Rex arms. So literally, when they pause on the floor, the bar's on the chest. Yeah. <laughs> I had a guy in college, John Malecki, I had to use the buffalo bar because he was so thick girth-wise in his upper back and chest. Mm. But they all become great pressers. Um, and that's what DeLouis talks about with special exercises. They'll develop this technical skill of the classical movement. Mm -hmm. Another value that, you know, and, I, and people know I'm influenced heavily by Louis, is I'm not all max effort work. And I think that's the mistake people see West side is just all max effort. That's ten percent of their volume in a, in a month, Jay. Right. The rest is some maximum work. Mm -hmm. You know, if I ask you what you could throw f further, a wiffle ball, baseball, or softball, obviously baseball. Chop the relationship between weight and speed. Cal Dietz talks about this again. Try phasing. We're taught high velocity, low force, high force, low velocity, but that's wrong. Between fifty-five and eighty percent, it's the optimal relationship. It's high force, high velocity which is where we spend the majority of the amount of our time training at the Arizona Cardinals in submaximal work. That, number one, has saved our guys because let's train, you either train maximally or train optimally. I prefer to train optimally. Maximally beats you up. Right. And Louis guys, let's face it, are beat up. That's their sport. My guys are beat up from the collisions. So I can't train them maximally. They go on a field day, which we start next week after only getting two weeks with them. That's your primary stressor. So now everything else becomes submaximal. You know, my offensive and defense linemen spend all the time concentrically punching. Our tricep work has a, a tremendously eccentrically based to keep elbow health, keep healthy the elbow, mm -hmm. and to offset the constant concentric contraction. So those are things that we're doing that I think are different, that I think are unique, 
And I and I, I can't say enough about the value of submaximal work. Ooh. James Smith taught me, and James Smith was the smartest man I've ever been around in my life. And James, like me, Dan Path calls James and I the two most politically incorrect people he's ever met. James <laughs> Smith taught me a long time ago about the value of submaximal training. And I have yet to meet in my profession, which I've been involved in 37 years, anybody smart as James Smith. And I was fortunate enough to hire him and have him on staff. And for four years, I learned more in those four years with him and my talks with Louie and my talks with Charlie and now my visits with Dan than I have from anybody in my entire career, today, to be honest with you. Well, that's straight up Bonderchuk, too, that whole 50 to 80% range where he says they spend, what, like 90% of their time there anyway? Yep. No, that's where we spend most of our time. You know, and to show you how that works, I have a defensive tackle, defensive nose guard we got from Atlanta. Corey Peters played at the University of Kentucky. And Corey is uh, rehabbing a ruptured Achilles. And so, you know, when a boy is on rehab mode, all the stresses placed on it occur in recovery. You know, because of rehabbing. So all the energy is geared toward helping the body recover and repair itself. So I, I never trained Corey heavier than like 315 for three reps on the bench. And we were going off at 365 max because I took into account he was rehabbing. We tested the other day on the bench. He goes, you know, buddy, I don't feel comfortable going heavier than 315. I haven't been heavier. I said, I think you're going to shock yourself, Corey. Did it 11 times. And he hasn't done it more than three reps the entire offseason. Jared Valdir has only trained at 345 on the bench, but yet at 365 he hit eight reps. So it just goes to show you don't have to train maximally. Train sub-maximally major movements, ingrain the proper movement patterns and technical skill and application of the exercise, Jay, and bump up your assistance work. Jump up, bump up the tricep, bump up the upper back, bump up their glutes and their hamstrings. Train them in different contractions, you know. Emphasize, first of all, static work, then go to, to, to eccentric lowering, and Cal, in his book, he's, and I, I hate to constantly refer to Cal, but in his book, he says, you know, he did a study. One group did pro shuttle drill, the other group did just isometrics and eccentrics in the weight room, and the group that did the eccentric lowering and the isometric work in the weight room had better outcomes on the pro shuttle drill than the actual guys who were doing it every day. Mm -hmm. So that just goes to show you, you know, we are not doing things right in this country. Some people are. And it's those people, like I tell you, Gal, Cal, the people you bring to your, your clinic your, every year are the people who are setting are forging the path for everybody else to follow. You know, I'm not going to buy into the functional movement screen. There's been millions of articles out there that say it does not predict injury, so it's a poor indicator. Uh, if you actually coach somebody on a movement screen, mm -hmm. tell them how to do it first and make them aware of things, they wind up doing it right. Just don't say step over the hurdle. Tell them what you want, then it changes the whole environment. You know, and that we fail to take into account, and Brett Contreras talked with me about this when I first got in Arizona. We failed to take into account the considerable amount of variation found in human movement. Same with Sean Miskin. We don't all move the same. Give all of us the same task, we're going to complete it slightly different. Right. Mel Sift told me, late Mel Sift told me years ago, back in Vegas, just because a muscle isn't active in isolated testing doesn't mean it's not doing its job in a sporting activity or sporting movement. Now, we fail to forget. You know, the Internet has killed our, our, our profession, let's be honest. All these people feeding each other to make a buck. But you go to the facilities and they say, oh, no, we individualize based on functional movement screen. And I, we specialize in this sport. But everybody that's in that sport you have is all doing the same thing. They're all doing the same exercise. I see no individualization. They're all doing everything the same. So you can't tell me you're individualizing based on the screen. Right. Right. It's crazy how that works and how 
all those things mixed together, it, it still just comes down to, you know, boring kind of works. You need to get good exactly. at the stuff that's you need to get good at, you know? Exactly. I mean, it's... You need to get good at the basics. Yeah. If you do the basics, everything else falls into place. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be doing all these crazy exercises I see out there anymore because they're not producing the results that you're telling me they're producing. You know, I've seen great results, like I said, with sub-maximum work. I brought Anthony here. I stole him off of Mississippi State and Rick Court. And uh, I remember the day I called Rick. I said, hey, Rick, and I've already called your head coach, Coach Mullins, and told him I was going to take Anthony. You know, Coach Mullins was like, great, you know, politically correct, great guy. You're going to get a great worker. Here's what I love about Rick Court. He was politically incorrect. <laughs> I, told him, I said, I'm going to take Anthony off you. I apologize. He goes, you motherfucker. <laughs> that's the correct answer. That's yeah. the politically correct answer. But, you know, in our profession, people say, ah, that's not right to say. Yeah, it was right to say because it let me know everything I need to know about the kid. Exactly. But again, he's been doing research for me. You and he was in Mississippi State sending me research articles constantly on my email of things I needed to read that he had found out. So he keeps me updated constantly, you know, about the, the changing trends and what's happening. But again, like I've tried to, I've taught Anthony this past year, and he's learned tremendously is the value of some maximum work. Jay. Mm -hmm. There's a reason Pilipin's chart was designed. There's a reason for that. There's a reason why we talk about ingraining the proper movement patterns and skill in every exercise, not just the bench or the squat, but every exercise has a level of skill that has to be mastered. No doubt. We spend, uh, there's like three of us, me, Roger, and Anthony, we spend a tremendous amount of energy daily on our floor coaching. You know, and we separate our groups so we get that time for quality coaching on all of our athletes. And we explain to them every day. Like I had to explain to my big group today, my offense, defense, line, and tight end, this is why those assigned percents are assigned. And this is what I want done. And this is why. And they all understood. Because now I created awareness. And now when you create awareness, you create more of an ownership. So they have a tremendous ownership. I can't say enough about this is the best year we've had since we've been here. But again, Jay, it's our third year here. Right. And any intelligent human being knows your first two years in a new institution, a new environment, it's going to take at least two years to implement anything. Right. You're not going to have immediate results based on what you do. You'll have it because you changed. Right. You a change in, in the system. Yeah. Just a novel stimulus. That's all it is. The novel stimulus, you're going to have a change or an adaptive response. It's going to take you about three years before you start to see the benefits of your program. Just like any training method, any training session, you know, we have to account for acute, uh, uh, immediate, cumulative, delayed, and residual effects of training mm -hmm. in just one training session. So when I sit down, like I'm going to after I'm done with you, I'm going to do our skill guides for the next two weeks. Because most people train in three-week and four-week blocks, I find on the elite level, they're about two weeks and then I move on to something else. But I always maintain a hint or thread of everything in each block or period of time that we have. Mm -hmm. Like Charlie said, if my speed work or sprint work, alactic work is here, the volume of work in weight room has to drop. In the beginning, my volume of weight work will be very high as I'm introducing the tissue in the system to that alactic acceleration speed component. And then they start to move up and they start to go inversely related to each other. And I have to take into account every jump, every med ball throw, every alactic sprint we do has to be accounted for before I go into the weight room. No doubt about it. 
No doubt about it. And that's a spot that I think that uh, is often talked about, but even more so overlooked because people don't really understand what those volumes are, are actually doing and what those intensities actually involve. And it's something that, you know, like you said not too long ago on Elite, it was, you know, you, you can squat all you want and get stronger in the squat, but that doesn't mean your sprints are going to go up. But as Absolutely. soon as you start sprinting, your squat's going to go up. Yeah, that's exactly right. And here's what people forget. In the very beginning with a, a beginning athlete or a low qualification, low classification athlete, getting them stronger will make them faster because they're increasing their force production. As they get older and they already understand how to create that force into the ground and they're running faster, the reason they lift is to just make sprinting more tolerable to the system. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean I got to squat a thousand pounds, I'm going to run a four flat 40 or a sub nine second 100 meters. There's training with weights or strength training to make the system more tolerable to what they're asking their body to do sprint wise. Right. And again, sprinting from an essential nervous system, neuromuscular synchronization standpoint, is the highest thing the body will ever do. The greatest taxer. People forget one of the most overlooked qualities for sprinting is coordination. Yeah. Being able to coordinate the limbs at a high velocity. Most people can't do that today. No. You know, most people cannot do that. Especially not team sport athletes. Oh my God, no. <laughs> Especially on this level, because, you know, at the end of the season, there's the dead zone. Mm -hmm. And that dead zone lasts till April 18th, then I get two weeks. And it's two weeks of just, you know, me and my staff with the players. Then after that, they're right back on the field because they're, they're only allowed to build in for four hours. So now I get an hour and a half, which only a half hour can be on the field, which if you've ever seen our warm-ups, and I'll be the first to admit, I take my warm-ups beyond where they really should be. Uh, it, it's just enough to warm them up. I can do that in the weight room. So give me the time in the weight room. We're allowed an hour in the weight room, uh, and then they're allowed the rest of the time in meetings and on the field. And that's for two weeks. Yeah. And then the last three weeks with OTAs, I get one hour, one hour meetings, two hours on the field. And then again, there's another five-week dead zone before we go to camp. So whoever designed the CBA in all this time off had no concern for the athlete from a physical and physiological perspective or standpoint. Yeah. Not one person on NCA board asked a strength or physical preparation strength coach or physical preparation coach, what is the best for the student athlete? I've never seen any of them ask it. Just like I've never seen anybody in the NFL bring in a bunch of strength coaches and say, okay, from your perspective, because you're, you're the ones who are responsible for their physical preparation, what needs to be done. Because now what you've done is you place that responsibility into the player's hand. Right. And a lot of these guys, and I understand with the older vets, they need more time off. But these guys are one, two, three, four years in the league. Maybe even five years. They should be, have at least a six-week period where they can spend with the physical preparation staff. Not just two weeks and then put them back on the field. That's absurd. Because you go to tissue tolerance and load capacity, they can't handle it. The tissue's not ready. And who can prepare anybody, Jay, for anything in two weeks? Yeah. All of a sudden, the volume of work potentially mm -hmm. drums to the roof. You know, Tim Gabbett from Australia, uh, and we've had Dr. Uh, David Opar and Chris Rowe up here twice now to talk about, you know, their Nord board and all the hamstring research that has been done. And I poured over a million different articles on hamstring, and uh, BA let me present to the team about soft tissue. And it's interesting to know 
across the board in all professional sports, 41% of all injuries are soft tissue related. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out why. So Tim Gabba talks about chronic acute ratio. No chronic loads are low, acute loads are high. Assist adaptation through gradation. Well, if you've got three weeks of chronic loading, and then all of a sudden that spike of acute exceeds those previous weeks of chronic by like, I think it's 150%, then you're going to have soft tissue injury. And you know, if you have a new coach come into a system, the first thing they do, Jay, you know this, is they grind them into the ground so they can put their foot down, their stamp on a program, and say, this is the way it's going to be. You know, and I understand that. But in doing that, you need to understand what you set your athletes up for. So we look at age and previous injury as great indicators, but we also need to look at, you know, this chronic versus acute ratio, how can we control it, especially on the elite level? Because we can impose a stimulus on any athlete, and every athlete's going to have a different response based on age, based on previous injury, based on level of fitness at the time this uh, stimulus was imposed. Everybody's going to have a different physiological response. At least if you give us more time, especially in the NCAA where you have more time because you're not dealing with elite athletes and your seasons aren't as long, you have more of a say-so in the development or preparation of the athlete before they're turned over to the coaches, which have no concern for rhyme or reason for volume. They just think the more reps, the better. Mm-hmm. But all they're doing is predisposing those athletes, and some will adapt. Some will be able to handle it. Some won't. There's going to be that two-week adaptation phase where you, you know, every strength coach in the country just hang on to their nuts. Think, oh, boy, here we go. You know, what did I get? Did I have it? Did I expose them to enough volume to accommodate what they're about to? But now, on this level, I have five weeks of a dead period where I don't see them, Jay. And give them workouts to go home. Many of them don't look at it. You tell them you're going to do some type of conditioning test, as it's referred to, when they come back. They'll just train to pass the test. That's all they do. Mm-hmm. They're no different than any other athlete. Nope. And then the first day of practice, is a, the first two days, is just an ordinate volume of work that they're not prepared for. Huh. And you take, a, you take a rookie, Jay, who has now got all this apprehension and their sympathetic dominance from the day they get drafted and their Acheron eyes wide open because now this is your job. This is what you're going to get paid for. There's no guarantee you're going to be here. And you increase the emotional trauma and stress and the yeah. apprehension. Forget about it. Yeah, you just compound things. Yeah. yeah. That's why we take time again before we go to camp to educate them on the most, the, the cheapest form of recovery is already innately built into the body, the human body, sleep. But I'm, I mean, it's amazing you have to teach people how to sleep properly, Jake. They don't get it. So it's constantly ongoing education and it's constantly finding ways to fit into the system. Unfortunately, here, we have a very open relationship with our trainers, Tom Reed, Mike, Chad, Jeff, Brett Fisher, RPT. I can't say enough good things about Brett, but it's a combination effort. Our cafeteria staff, which we have a totally organic cafeteria, even the guys who do our, our field work are always talking to us about things. Even i got to mention my boys Parker and Schwim and the equipment manager are always on top of things. So it's a coordinated effort across all these people what we call downstairs in the basement to provide for our athletes to create the optimal training environment for them. There's no egos here because if you do that, the only person that suffers is the athlete. You put them in the middle. 
So I'm constantly tidy with Tom Reed, Brett Fisher, and Chad Cook, our PTs, and our head athletic trainer every day. And every day they tell me if I need to make a modification, you need to keep an eye on this guy, he's doing this. We report back to them on a daily basis, Jay, the modifications we've found or we made in the weight room with the athletes. So there's an ongoing communication, including our medical staff with Dr. Waz, Dr. Freeberg. There's a constant ongoing communication between everybody on the bottom floor to provide for these guys. And these guys understand that too. They know. You know, and there's only three of us, me, Roger, and Anthony, and we run around with our chicken like chickens with our heads cut off. But we probably do more work with less of all those technologically advanced monitoring systems and get more out of our players and the majority of teams. Well, that's awesome, and that's, I think that's probably a good spot to cut it, even though I bet we could sit here and rap about this for another two and a half hours, Coach. No question. I'm no. hungry, Daddy. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you being on, buddy, and I'm, uh, I'm stoked to have you here in July, man. We'll, uh, we'll definitely yeah, pick I'm, I'm thrilled about the opportunity to come to your clinic. Uh, it's just a great honor for me because of those other speakers. It's a chance for me to learn. You know, and I jump at a chance to learn, especially from Derek and especially from Hank. I've read that last year Coach Krabzinoff was at Altus, unfortunately, during the season, I couldn't get over there. But he even did a mentorship over there with Dan. You know, I encourage everybody to get a chance to do a mentorship under Dan Path, Stuart McMillan, and everybody over at Altus, jump on it. You'll come away shocked. My buddy Tommy Mazinski, who's head strength coach at Jacksonville Jaguars, I'm sorry, not strength coach, physical preparation coach, spent a week out there. And I was fortunate enough to have dinner with um, Dan, Tommy, and uh, Carlo Boscelli, who just wrote the book with Bump on athletic periodization. I sat down there and I actually took a notebook, Jay. Yes. And during a dinner conversation, I'm taking notes. And for four hours, I was like, God damn, I don't know a thing. <laughs> it's crazy how those situations light you up, you know? But listen, when I become the smartest person in the room, I leave. Oh, no doubt. I want to go in a room where I'm the dumbest so I can learn. That's why we're taking this FRC course, because it's a chance for us to better provide for our athletes. And let's face it, bottom line, you're never going to prevent injury in our sport, Jay. It's a collision sport. Right. I'm not concerned about optimizing performance. I'm concerned about reducing injury. Because the only way they're going to get better at their sport is to be able to do their sport. Mm-hmm. Let's face it, in the beginning, there's nothing we're going to give these guys in a weight room that's going to make them a better football player. Not one thing. Now, we can do special exercises which mimic the joint dynamics to support the specific, which is the actual joint action. But most of the stuff we do, let's face it, is very general in nature, especially when you don't get them all year round. Now, we do some things that we call special exercises, which I'll talk about at the clinic, for our athletes. But again, those special exercises just support, like Bonder Chuck said, the specific. And they're going to get better at the specific is actually do the specific. So our goal here... It's just to keep trying to reduce injury from year to year. Hundred percent. Well, I'm excited to see what those are. You know, it's, you know, learning so long under Doctor Yesis, it's his bread and butter. So can't wait to see what you got. And with Joseph those. Johnson does a great job. Yep. You know, he sends me all this stuff, all the books. You know, I have probably one third of the books you can see behind me in my office, Jay. Uh, and you can't even see my desk. But then again, most people wouldn't want to. Yeah, couldn't see mine either. But coach. See? Thanks a bunch Busy for the time. Oh, you ain't kidding, man. <laughs> appreciate the time, and we'll see you real soon. Jay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And a huge thanks to today's guest, 2016 presenter and Arizona Cardinals head strength and conditioning coach, Buddy Morris. Guys, you know, every time you talk with Buddy, there's a, there's a ton of knowledge, a ton of great examples and, and open and honest sharing, so can't thank him enough for being on today. As always, guys, if you enjoyed the talk, share it in the social media outlet of your choice. 
Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. We're just trying to get the word out there, get some good information out there to coaches. And as always, guys, we appreciate your involvement. Thank you for being involved with Central Virginia Sport Performance. And we'll be back next week with another awesome guest.